Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk with a Doc, the show where we bring your questions to Providence medical experts for insight and information. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and here with me today is Dr. Megan Chiarelli with Facey Medical Center, and we're answering your question about the terrible twos. Remember, everyone, all of our questions come from our listeners via social media. We can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under Providence. Use the hashtag Talk with a Doc. That's hashtag Talk with a Doc for a chance to hear your questions in our episodes. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. So let's get started today by welcoming Dr. Megan Chiarelli with Facey. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you. You are a longtime friend of ours. You've come done a few of these, so you're a pro. You can't stop me. <laughs> well, for those listening today who don't know you, though, tell us a little bit about your background. So I am a child psychiatrist, I'm also a general psychiatrist, and I happen to have one of my own two-year-olds currently and Mm. have a five-year-old as well, so I I have experience in my own home. (laughs) Well, the topic today is terrible twos. Let's be real easy on this one. What are the terrible twos? So I think it's basically when your sweet, adorable, compliant um, toddler becomes a tyrant and they (laughs) basically have tantrums they say no to everything and everything feels like a battle of wills and this is normal though yes it is normal Mm -hmm. there's a lot of reasons that it's happening at that time um, but it's uh, different kids have it to a greater or lesser degree Um, my oldest child was not so terrible we didn't really struggle with that Um, but I can tell you that my daughter is making up for it Um, A lot of this is about really language, we think. You know, at two, kids have a lot of receptive language, but not so much expressive language. Mm -hmm. They can understand what's being said to them, but they can't get their needs met in a way that's meaningful. So that can result in a lot of crying, whining, tantruming. Frustration in general. It would be frustrating if you think about it. So a lot of the things I'll ask, you know, put yourself in the two-year-old's position. You know, if somebody was telling you, to get dressed, um, you know, as an adult, you'd be like, what? I mean, I'll do that when I'm ready. Right, right. But as a two-year-old, you don't keep your own time. So you're being forced to do a lot of things that you don't want to do at times you don't want to do them. Well, they call them the terrible twos, but they don't just happen at two, right? No, they don't. Um, they, I would say that some kids, they can start before two, depending on your individual child and their temperament. Um, and for some kids, they can last up into four. Um, I would say I had more struggle with my son when, when he was four than mm-hmm. I did when he was two or three. So it really just depends on your individual kid. And a lot of it may have to do with kind of the goodness of fit of the temperament and you, of you and your child mm-hmm. and also the environment around you. You said in another episode, too, that sometimes parents and kids don't have the right fit, right? Like you can have different personalities, different styles. Sometimes one's organized and not the other. Um, what is that like? I mean, how do you coach parents when their their kids are just not what they thought they would be or don't respond the way that they understand how to, to engage with their kids? I don't know how anyone could have realistic expectations of going into parenting, um, <laughs> but I like to tell parents that they need to do two things for their kids. They need to provide them with unconditional love and with boundaries. Mm-hmm. And what you're trying to do over time is basically put yourself out of a job. You don't want to be tying somebody's shoelaces forever, but at a certain time, that's really appropriate and realistic. Um, When it comes to temperament and goodness of fit, there's a lot of psychodynamic theories on a lot of these things. Um, But if you can kind of think about it, 
your child is going to be a mix of you and your spouse and whatever family members, or if your child is adopted, maybe some of these aren't genetic conditions so much as things that either resonate or just don't resonate with you. So if there are um, attributes about your child that are things in your partner that you find really, really annoying, you might find them really, really annoying in your child. <laughs> or if your child is highly anxious, but you're really easygoing, mm-hmm. you might find it really hard to relate to them. It doesn't mean that their feelings aren't valid. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to grow out of it. Um, I think anybody who's had children at all, but certainly anybody who's had more than one child realizes they're kind of born who they are. And you can shape that to some degree, but largely speaking, their temperament is what they're born with. Interesting. Well, the terrible twos, you talked a little bit about what people tend to think they are, but what would you say are the typical signs? Is it really just the tantrums? Is it the frustration? I think saying no, resistance, is Mm. is a big thing. Um, When kids are infants, babies, the world essentially revolves around them, and psychodynamic theory calls this egocentrism. Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone is just catering to their every whim and need at every time, and then as they get older, more physically capable, more uh, capable with their language, then they're going to um, want to try things on their own, and they're also going to be pushed to try things on their own. So trying to encourage by what we call scaffolding, setting realistic goals for a child, can be really important to building their self-esteem. So maybe a kid is not ready to go, you know, from uh, from slip-on shoes to tie shoes, but maybe they are ready to do Velcro shoes. If gotcha. you kind of show them how to do it at first and practice patience with this, um, it doesn't work out in the best interest of anyone to push kids th- to do things they're really not willing to do or not ready to do and they'll let you know they'll they'll really dig in their heels either that or they're they're going to start having a lot of hesitancy about approaching new situations or taking on new tasks so what advice do you give parents then during the terrible twos is it to be because you talked about love and you talked about boundaries is it to give them more of love and more of boundaries or how, how do you do that so there is um a there's four different types of parenting according to bauman um, and it depends on the amount of demands the and the amount of sensitivity that you offer to your children. Um, so people who have high demands but also high sensitivity are called authoritative, mm-hmm. whereas high demands and being kind of reserved, stern, they're considered authoritarian. Okay. Um, in I would say in like the U.S. in the 1950s, authoritarian parenting was a pretty popular parenting right. style. Um, and now we tend to see that authoritative parenting styles are actually better for um, emotional and behavioral outcomes in a child. There's also people who are not at all demanding and they don't reinforce limits who can either be sensitive or stern and aloof. So people who are have who don't reinforce boundaries and are also stern and aloof, we consider them uninvolved or neglectful. Um, whereas people who are very sensitive but don't hold people to limits considered indulgent. Mm. Um, and these actually can have different strengths and weaknesses in, in different cultures. There's some studies that show that in Asia, perhaps authoritarian parenting is actually beneficial to the child, whereas in some Latin cultures, perhaps the more permissive indulgent parenting style can be beneficial. So a lot of this is going to depend on your child. And I think some of the mismatches I've also seen are when the family has immigrated from another country or another culture and they're trying to kind of reinforce their home culture, which is not really the home Mm -hmm. culture of their child. They're kind of in two worlds. Wow. 
Oh, that's really interesting. I like, I, as you were saying that, I was thinking of people I know and whose parenting styles are like that and then sometimes the actions of their kids. So what happens if you have parents that have two different styles of parenting? How do you coach them through that? If it's working, then that's perfectly fine. By the time they're coming to see me in my child psychiatry office, usually something's not going so super well. Um, I have certain books that I recommend as far as different parenting strategies that they might take on. Um, but if it's really a, a challenge that they're having trouble bonding with their child or that they're having like severe behavioral issues with their child, then they might need what's called parent management training, which is an umbrella term for lots of different types of treatment that essentially involve like parent coaching on how to set limits with their children. Because kids really thrive with those limits. And if you don't set them, they will push boundaries. And that actually doesn't make them feel secure. They want to find that there is a limit. They may not like it, right. but they also kind of thrive in that it's environment. to know. Exactly. Well, that's what I would wonder about the terrible twos is, are they sometimes just pushing the boundaries to see what they are? Like, is are the terrible twos actually really all that bad? They are a normal part of development, but they can certainly be trying for you as a parent. One thing I like to, to tell myself when my daughter is having extremes of emotions, or even my son who's a little bit older, is that if she's not able to control her emotions, then I need to set an example by controlling mine. So the temptation can really be to like raise your voice, to act out of anger, and that's really doing the opposite of what your kids need from you right in that moment. And also, like if you can't control your own emotions, then how could you possibly expect a two-year-old to do so? So giving yourself some grace, practicing maybe timeouts for yourself so mm -hmm. that you can feel restored and ready to take on some of the more challenging behavior. Um, I know for us, mornings can be a real struggle because there's a deadline and there's we've all got to get out on. of the house. Uh -huh. Yes. Interesting. Well, um, one of the questions we got was, how can I manage my emotions toward my child when they're acting out? And I think what you're talking about is really good taking a break. But are there other tips? Like, is it to learn that you have to be firm with your kids? Or what are the coaching tips you'd give there? I think that you want to strike when the iron is cold. You want to think about what are the strategies that you want to employ, not just kind of wing it, because mm -hmm. when people don't feel prepared, then they're going to be more reactive in a highly emotional environment. And I know this kind of sounds silly that, you know, a tantruming two-year-old could be upsetting. When you're the parent, though, it's very upsetting. And depending on the environment, it can be really embarrassing. You oh, know, especially if you're, if you're in a grocery store on, on an airplane. Or at a funeral. Oh, yes. So it can be it can be really upsetting to try to like move through this situation and still feel connected and still make sure that your child is feeling loved but also getting what they need um, so I like to tell people like put yourself in their shoes right like something upsetting has just happened and their world is very small compared to yours they don't have a frame of reference um, so how do you want to help them react to their strong emotions um, one book I really really super like can I talk about books yeah please um, raising an emotionally intelligent child by the Gottmans. Um, they're usually people who write about marriage, and those books are great too, but this book is super excellent, and I feel like it gave me a lot of confidence as a parent, so I, I'm happy to recommend it both as a clinician and as a parent, that uh, you having emotions as a parent is actually instructive for your child. You don't want them to see you as like a robot or somebody who's mm -hmm. perfect because that's not an attainable standard for them. So instead you want to focus on labeling emotions and the same with your child. You know, if they're having, if they're crying, you might say, you seem sad right now. Tell me what's going on. And then kind of coach through that depending on their age and what kind of language right. skills that they have. But even at a pre-verbal age, you can start with labeling 
labeling emotions. And then similarly with yourself, if you're having a time period where you're feeling very frustrated, you're feeling angry, you're feeling exhausted, um, or you're feeling sad, you can label that for your child. You know, I'm sorry, mama's just feeling really sad mm -hmm. right now. Something really sad happened to me at work today. When I'm sad, I like to, you know, snuggle with you. Can you help me? So it gives your kid a, a, a framework to, to move through their emotions in a healthy way. I love that you, you brought that book up because I think emotional intelligence is something that people just don't really spend enough time thinking about because it's how do we manage our own emotions? How do we use that and how do, to assess others? And I think it's a big miss. And I, it's interesting because I've never really thought about it from the parenting perspective. I've always thought about it from corporate culture or being a leader, but it is important that we acknowledge that with our kids. I think we don't remember that we actually have to teach our kids everything. Right. We don't just have to teach them like to say please and thank you. We have to teach them how to appropriately relate to other people, how to someday be a good friend, be a good partner, um, how to cope with strong emotions and hopefully not struggle with things like depression or anxiety by themselves. It's, it's a lot. Parenting is a lot. It is. It is, but everybody keeps doing it. Don't go into it lightly. No. <laughs> um, well, how long does the terrible twos typically last? So I would say on on average maybe a year or more, and it it's going to kind of... You just said that very lackadaisically. That's a long time. Well, because it's it's not always at the pinnacle, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so it's it starts gradually, and it'll taper out gradually. And ideally, it'll taper out better if you start using some behaviorally reinforcing strategies. Um, so as far as um, setting boundaries and discipline, I like to use the book 123 Magic by Thomas Phelan. And it gives a kind of no nonsense, um, but non-emotive structure for timeouts. And mm -hmm. a lot of people will be like, well, we try timeouts and they don't work. No, this is like the ultimate timeout book guide and it has like every piece of well what happens if they wreck their room while they're in there or what happens oh. if they won't go mm -hmm. it's got all the contingencies laid out for you and it's very very effective so this is not the same counting my parents did when they were like <laughs> i'm gonna count to three and then it's you know a spanking um while we're talking while i mentioned that i want to say that studies have been very clear that corporal punishment mm -hmm. is not an effective strategy for disciplining your child so it's not illegal to strike your child with an open hand mm -hmm. on their bottom but it is uh, it is illegal to do it with a closed fist or to strike somebody else's child mm -hmm. and certainly what are you, you want to think about what you would be reinforcing that it's okay to hit when you're right, angry right or to teach somebody a lesson by hitting them exactly right. so it doesn't work for discipline we should move to things that do work absolutely well, we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we'll continue the conversation on the terrible twos Vintage tea, brand new phone, high heels on, cobblestones. When you are young, they assume you know nothing. Sequin smile, black lipstick, sensual politics. When you are young, they assume you know
on Talk with the Doc, and today we're with Dr. Megan Chiarelli, and we are talking about the terrible twos. And right before the break, we were talking about punishment and timeouts. How do you how do you work with parents who say, look, my child is not responding to a timeout, or they're not responding to a spanking, or what are the other options that people can do? There's lots of options. So first of all, if you want to shape behavior, you need to reward desirable behavior. So anytime your kid does something that you want them to do, there needs to be some kind of reward. And it doesn't mean you need to like give your kid cash or candy every time they, you know, say please or thank you, but you want to reinforce it with what I do is just effusive praise. Mm -hmm. There's also token economies, sticker charts. So Mm -hmm. that's how you reward wanted behavior. And that's how you cultivate then more of it, right? It's the same way with when you're training a pet or when you're, you know, effusively thanking your husband for taking out the garbage. Like positive (laughs) rewards work. Um, we, We know that very well. It's different when you're thinking about unwanted behaviors. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of a you know a full spectrum of things that can be unwanted behaviors, from things that are just like mildly annoying and you'd prefer they stop, to things that are absolutely a non-starter. You can never do that, never, ever, ever. Um, and a lot of people get stuck with the idea that they think that they're bribing their kid if they give them like a reward for good behavior mm-hmm. and, and how to, to incorporate that. We want to flip the script on that because we're not actually bribing them 
what we're doing is sort of offering payment. This is the reward for the good behavior. You have to earn it. Mm -hmm. So many families have gotten stuck in a routine where the kid thinks that they've lost their tablet privileges or that they've lost something when, in fact, we don't want to think about it that way. We want to think about it as something they did not earn. earn. It was right. a choice mm -hmm. that they made. It was not something that they were entitled to. And I usually, you know, I frame this to parents and to kids like, if I don't come to work, I don't get paid. Mm -hmm. So that is my reward for coming to work. Similarly, if your reward for finishing your homework, for bringing, you know, for clearing the table, or for young kids, um, it might be a reward for putting their shoes back. Mm -hmm. And you want to start that as as soon as they're physically capable and have the language skills to do some things for themselves. There's a lot of studies that show that self-efficacy, like kids having chores in their lives, is very important for their self-esteem and certainly if we're going to be you know bringing these young people out into the world and they don't have any idea how to shop for cleaning supplies right. or how to you know go about uh, changing tires mm -hmm. or you know lots of things that we need to start instilling at a young age so we want to reward those wanted behaviors for things that we don't want them to do um, if it's something you would never tolerate under any circumstance, like hitting or you know perhaps swearing, you know depending on your family values, you want to make sure that those rules are pretty clear, and that you also want to make sure that you follow through with the punishment. Because the worst thing you can do is not follow through with that punishment, and then they know that they can get away with it. They can talk you out of it. They can mm -hmm. butter you up, and then there's no in, there's no disincentive for them to not repeat that behavior in the future. So timeouts can be very effective, and like I said, not earning the privileges, not so much loss right. of privileges, but that they did not then earn the, you know, 20 minutes of tablet time or, you know, an episode of a TV show. This, I think, is where it comes into both parents have to be aligned, because I think if one parent is the person who's giving the discipline and being strict about it and the other is lackadaisical, then you have this kind of issue of how do I handle this going forward? Are you not familiar with if mom says no, ask dad? <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> I thought I invented that. Um, so parents do need to be aligned. And, you know, that needs to be a conversation that they have privately because it can right. escalate to, to, you know, seeing the parents in an argument. Oh, if, sure. if mom sure. has said no, that they can't have a second bowl of ice cream after dinner, but dad permits it. Um, <laughs> not that parents can't have their own kind of strengths and weaknesses and want to be indulgent at times because that's what makes having kids fun, right? right. It's being able to be the person who lets them do something that they really enjoy. But you got to be on the same page as other people who are parenting your children. And for some people, that's going to include, you know, grandparents, aunts and uncles. You want to make sure that they're not undoing what you're doing. Right, right. But that said, people who, kids who spend time in more than one household, so perhaps parents that are not living together um, or that they spend a lot of time with other people, kids understand. They understand the difference between the rules at mom's house mm -hmm. and the rules at, you know, other mom's house. So it doesn't have to be something that um, that is exactly the same between the two. That's, that's really good advice. We have a lot of questions. Um, one is, is there another time period in your child's life that is terrible, like the terrible teens? Well, <laughs> I, I, I have a lot of people who are telling me that uh, raising teens has its own challenges. Um, I think it's really an opportunity for communication that starts in youth. Um, another book I really like is um, How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen. Mm. Um, there's three books. There's that one, the How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. And then there's a teen one, How to Talk So Teens Will Listen and Listen So Teens Can Talk. That's a hard one. Yeah. And if you've started this at a younger age, you know, if you can be... Um, 
welcome, receptive, non-judgmental in receiving conversations that your kids want to have, um, I think that that's going to lay the framework for them to have some much more difficult, much more high-stakes conversations as they get into their teen years and, and into their adulthood because parenting really doesn't ever stop. Right. Um, you uh, definitely want to ask a lot of questions. I have, I've been asked many times about, you know, how do they talk to kids about, let's say some sort of tragedy has happened, mm -hmm. you know, somebody has passed away or there's been something, you know, a, a natural disaster. How do we talk to my kids about this? And you always want to start with just asking like, hey, what do you know about this? Right. Uh, kids pick up on a lot more than you'd think. Um, and then you can explain things in an age appropriate way. And so that goes with, you know, the difficult conversations that you might have with a teenager, right? Like they're staying out late, you're worried about what they're doing. You just really want to open it with a question and open it with a conversation. Um, and as kids get older, and if they're, you know, perhaps misbehaving with those boundaries, you can ask them what they think the boundaries are right. should be. Because like I said before, kids, kids will seek out boundaries even if they you know they're not going to admit to their friends that they think a curfew of midnight is appropriate but they will respect you and 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 love you for holding to it if they oh, yeah. they do it i used to use my parents all the time when i didn't want to stay out late I was like oh they actually my curfew's 11 o'clock now <laughs> that's totally a good excuse um well we had a good question are there any safety precautions i should make around our home to prepare for the terrible twos I mean, I think most of the baby proofing should have already happened right, by that age, right. right? You know, they're pretty mobile. Um, I think one thing you do want to have planned out is what's going to be your exit strategy, your discipline strategy, if your kids are acting up and it's at Target or right. it's in the car. What are you going to do? You want to be prepared. So the same way you'll prepare for if they're potty training and what's your target strategy, what's your car strategy, you need to have a strategy for that. Are you going to be smart. able to execute a timeout in the car or is this going to mean lost privileges or is this going to mean you guys abandon the trip? Yeah. I am. Um, actually, my parents did the, um, do you want to go to the car, which you never wanted to go to the car because when you got to the car, you were either going to get a lecture or possibly a spanking. I was in my 20s and I was somewhere with my dad and I wasn't feeling well and he said, do you want to go to the car? And I said, no. And it, I mean, that's how long it stuck with me. I did not want to go to the car. The timeout was not good. Uh, I had a question for you because I know you and I have talked about a lot of topics before. We've talked about autism and different things. Is it harder for kids uh, in, when they present with the terrible twos to know if it's a terrible twos or if it's something else, if they're maybe autistic or they have ADHD? Does it, does it exacerbate it? Kids with autism would potentially be starting to show symptoms in, you know, as early as the age of about 12 months, um, but it can be harder to pick up up on until later because one major component of an autism diagnosis is social and communication. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, prior to 12 months, most of the social and communication is just kind of like making eye contact and social smiling. Um, beyond that though, um, you know, if your kid is not interacting in a way that feels meaningfully to you, um, and especially if you have other kids to compare it to, but if even if it's your first child and you feel like perhaps they're not making eye contact, they're not picking up their verbal skills, this is something that your pediatrician should be talking to you about at um, when you go in for your well-child visit, asking how the child's doing on their milestones. Um, and a lot of them actually do screening for autism at, at some of those visits, not all do. Um, if you yourself are concerned, you can look up the M-Chat online. It's a screening tool for autism that's really commonly used, and it's things like sensitivity to loud sounds like the vacuum cleaner or the hair dryer, um, what we call um, stereotypies like hand flapping or rocking behaviors that you don't see as normal. Um, but I think for most kids, you wouldn't necessarily confuse the terrible twos for autism. Um, Did you say M-chat? M-chat, yeah. M-chat. 
Um, as far as ADHD, like I said, it is possible for kids that age to have ADHD, but being that it is a comparison to age norms, if we if we went out and looked at the diagnostic criteria at a, at a preschool right now, I think it'd be like 99% of kids would have ADHD. So we really need to, them to get a little bit older. The other reason being ADHD has to occur in more than one setting. And a lot of kids, if they're just home with mom or home with grandma all day, they don't have more than one setting. So we need to know that it's something that's impairing them both at home and at school. Makes sense. Well, what are some possible tips and tricks for dealing with this type of behavior? I'm a single parent. That was a question we got. So you have some great opportunities in a single parent that you don't have other people kind of meddling with. No um, interference. Yeah, no interference. So you can you can rule the roost there. Um, so find a parenting and a discipline strategy that works for you. Um, it needs to be something that's effective and evidence-based, ideally. Um, but there's, there's lots of different strategies out there. And I've already talked about sticker charts, timeouts. And you want to be doing them effectively because there's ways to do these things ineffectively. And then you're going to say, like, nothing works. That's absolutely not true. How long, when we talked about like sticker charts and those things which are rewarding, and then you talked about some things of not necessarily losing them but not earning the privileges, how, how much time is a good amount of time? So if you were going to, say, take away a time or not earn it, is it like 30-minute increments or does it depend on age? How do you make those decisions as a parent? I think the American Academy of Pediatrics doesn't recommend any television below the age of two. Um, that said, um, <laughs> I think television can be entertaining and educational. So, um, so I almost got to cook sometimes. So, <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, if you're if you're using that as as a make sure it's something you're willing to follow through on is I guess what I'm. Okay. trying to say about television because for me if I have my kids watching TV it is because I'm cooking or something mm-hmm. that I need to not have them underfoot with a hot pan um, and it's not something I'm willing to take away so I shouldn't threaten to do it right. um, so the amount of and increments of screen time it really just depends on your family and your culture you know we don't watching too much TV has does not cause ADHD or you know okay. anything like that. It may not be good. It may not be the healthiest option, um, but it it's not necessarily going to cause some some sort of bad outcome if they're watching age appropriate TV in a moderated fashion. Um, so you just got to think about what it is, and perhaps if the kid is is old enough to communicate, um, you might find out what it is that they like. So sticker charts, if they're going to earn things, you want to have the things be incrementally harder to earn. If the kid is really good at um, you know their shoes away when they come in then you need to move on to a new task Mm -hmm. then you can add that to the sticker chart you don't want it to fall off so you're still going to reinforce that they should be doing that but you don't want to just like get stuck with whatever those expectations are and a lot of kids will game the system so like i know people like to use like m&ms when kids are potty training so the kid will go into the bathroom and like urinate a little bit they get an (laughs) m&m they go back and they do it again because they know if they go just a little bit then they can (laughs) earn an m&m for each time so you want to avoid getting into the power struggle and reward things that are really super meaningful and that you want your kid to actually be doing strategic thinking by kids though that's impressive very clever yeah yeah um well what about um physical activity energy like if kids are in the terrible twos is some of that just because they're either tired or they don't have enough energy outlet there can be a lot of factors. Sleep is definitely a huge one. So kids between the AAP re- suggests that kids one to two years of age should sleep between 11 and 14 hours a day, and that's including wow. their naps. Kids three to five should be um, sleeping 10 to 13 hours a day. So you know if you're adding up like how much time is my kid sleeping? How are they doing with naps? Um, you know. 
this could be a time terrible too is when kids are actually dropping a nap and it doesn't mean that they shouldn't also still have some quiet time or an opportunity to nap if your kid is falling asleep in the car on car rides it probably is showing you that they're really not ready to give up that nap yet and you just need to kind of reinforce that behavior um, other things that can you know be significant factors with the terrible twos is potty training is happening around this time and that can be a real struggle there's really only two things that a tiny tiny human actually has control over and that's what goes in and what comes out so this is something that they can really manipulate you with um, so similarly with diet if they're a mm -hmm. poor eater this can become a real battle of wills right. so you want to just try to like reinforce the wanted behavior but also give the kid some space to be themselves and know that if you give your kid Doritos for breakfast for six months that they're probably going to still grow up to be a functioning adult you got to let a lot of things go <laughs> um, another thing that can happen around this time is a new sibling being born and that oh, can right. be really disruptive to the whole kind of dynamic of the family um, so it's something that you want to practice a lot of empathy with your child well, we're down to the last minute, I think. Is there any piece of advice or anything you would want parents or, or adults to know about the terrible twos? I had a mentor once told me that um, life was like pearls on a string. At every age, there was something to be appreciated. So mm -hmm. I would say relish in those positive moments when your kids are being sweet and endearing. When they learn to lie to you for the first time, think about that as an important milestone, and they're using really critical thinking skills. So just enjoy the positives. Oh, great advice. I like the way you think, Doc. Well, thank you, Dr. Megan Chiarelli with Facing Medical Center for joining us today and everyone for listening and sending in your questions. We look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence and Facy. Make sure to follow us on social media at Providence on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And to learn more about our mission, programs, and services, visit future.phahealth.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>